0: Welcome to Global Trade Talks, brought to you by Kroll & Maury. Our hosts, Nicole Simonian and Ambassador Robert Holliman, share brief perspectives on key global issues in international trade, current events, business law, and public policy as they
1: impact our lives. Our guest today is James Sullivan. Jim recently served as the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Services at the Department of Commerce from July 2017 through January 2021. Before joining the Commerce Department, he was president of Internet Startup Takeout and general counsel of private equity firm Clover Investment Group. Prior to that, Jim practiced law in Washington DC as a member of the White Collar Defense Practices at Morrison & Forrester and DLA Piper. Welcome Jim, thank you so much for joining us.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Jim, we'd love to begin with you sharing some background about your work as Deputy Assistant Secretary if you can explain your work around trade and services and in the International Trade Administration's mandate at the Commerce Department.
0: Sure. So as you just noted, I worked in the department's International Trade Administration on what we call trade and services. What that means is that unlike some of my counterparts who focused on U.S. manufacturing or agricultural industries, I concentrated on U.S. businesses that provide financial services or digital services or supply chain services, or frankly, other professional services ranging from R&D to accounting to legal services, which when you take them all together, they account for about 70% of U.S. employment and about 70% of our gross domestic product. My job was basically to help create the policy and regulatory conditions for these providers to innovate and to compete both at home and around the world. And because every sector of the modern global economy is really fueled by consumers and companies and governments all communicating and exchanging information over the internet, one of the biggest parts of the job is to really ensure that data can flow freely across borders in a protected and secure way. Given the ongoing debate we're seeing around online privacy, I think it's an extremely important role. It's also one of those rare areas where you see some very long-standing partisan agreement on the issues, as well as some real congeniality among the job holders. You know, my predecessor in the Obama administration, Ted Dean, was extremely gracious and supportive to me during my tenure. I've now spoken several times since January 20th with uh, Chris Hoff, who is my successor in the Biden administration. So it was was really a privilege to serve in the position. And I think all of us who have, have been extremely well served by the career staff in the office.
2: Jim, can you talk a little bit about the US-EU digital economy relationship? That's a hugely important part of the way that we work with a large economy, that we have services engagement, data flows. Can you tell me a little bit about that sort of transatlantic relationship? And I know we have a, a privacy shield that was struck to help facilitate data transfers. Can you tell me a little bit about that and ITA's role and your role in on those issues?
0: You know, Today, the United States and the European Union together, they account for about half of the world's GDP and I think something on the order of a third of the world's trade flows. And our total economic relationship is currently estimated to be at over $7 trillion a year. So this relationship is critical and it's not really possible in the modern economy without data. You can't engage in e-commerce, you can't seek jobs, you can't email your friends or your colleagues or share details about your life on social media unless that data is able to flow across borders. And a critical issue in the US-EU context is that while we do share the same values with respect to personal privacy, we do take some different approaches as to how we regulate it. As a very general rule, the EU has one law, the relatively new General Data Protection Regulation that protects all personal data and prohibits an EU individual's personal data from flowing to a country that doesn't provide what they call essentially equivalent data protection. Here at home, by contrast, the United States does not have one single data protection law. We have instead a multitude of very robust and often sectoral privacy laws, and we have them both at the federal and the state level. And so in July of 2016, to bridge our our different regulatory approaches, both sides entered into the Privacy Shield Pact, which is basically an international framework aimed at protecting individual privacy while at the same time ensuring that we can meet the legitimate needs of companies and of our governments. My old office is the U.S. government's lead in administering and overseeing the Privacy Shield program. And basically what that did, it allowed U.S. companies and organizations to certify that they were complying with the privacy norms that were in the framework. And when I left, there were nearly 5,400 U.S. organizations that had certified to the program. I think it's important to note that over 70 percent of those companies and organizations were small and medium-sized enterprises. And I think that really reflects the fact that Privacy Shield really was the most cost-effective and straightforward approach for our organizations to satisfy European privacy requirements.
2: So Jim, when I was in the Obama administration, there was an interagency effort that I was part of to help negotiate the Privacy Shield back in 2016 that was ultimately approved By the European Union, but in July of 2020, the European Court of Justice invalidated that Privacy Shield as a approved data transfer mechanism. So I'm really curious as this continuum goes on, how do you really see the work of the Commerce Department and their approach on this, and you know how? If at all, is there any difference between the prior administration, the current administration? How is kind of the whole of government approaching it? It's clearly critical for the U.S.-EU relationship and also for the frameworks for data transfers.
0: Yeah, it's a great question. Just uh, As a preliminary note, I should say the, the U.S. government and our partners in the Commission, the European Commission, both work together to defend the privacy Shield. And the court really had no issues with companies' efforts to protect data when they use Privacy Shield. Instead, what the court did focus on was the possibility that EU personal information that's transmitted over cyber networks to the US could be accessed by US national security agencies. And in particular, it really looked at whether under, under EU law, US surveillance programs are limited to what is strictly necessary and proportional and whether EU individuals have access to what they called an effective remedy in the United States if their data were in fact to be accessed by US government agencies. Court's ruling also called into question another approved transfer mechanism that's typically used by larger companies. That's called standard contractual clauses. And it said that companies looking to send personal data to the United States using standard contractual clauses now have to verify that US law ensures adequate data protection or else they have to provide additional safeguards or suspend their transfers altogether. The bottom line is that ruling created some very massive uncertainty on both sides of the Atlantic. And so for our part, and again, being mindful of the fact that, as you just noted, this framework was negotiated and then entered into during the Obama administration. We stood it up and had three successful annual reviews for interagency partners and our year. We had that, that court ruling very late, In in my tenure in July of 2020, but my successor, Chris Hoff, is continuing the very important work on doing this. So, so to your point, there has been effectively zero interruption or zero change in policy on this. So, again, we wanted to address all of the open questions now companies, be they large companies or small companies, have. We worked with our interagency friends from Justice and the State Department and the Office of the Director of National Intelligence and, and many others to take a number of steps. You know, in August, we opened official discussions with our our friends in Europe, amending Privacy Shield to comply with the court's ruling. Uh, In September, we then decided, you know, we need to do something to help companies that use standard contractual clauses. And we published a white paper to really help them make the case for transferring data to the U.S. We tried to make it as clear as possible. Uh, There are many, many U.S. protections that are frankly equal to or exceed the protections that are afforded in the EU which we think the court failed to address in its opinion. And we also spelled out the additional privacy safeguards and a number of key U.S. laws that ensure that U.S. intelligence agencies' access to data is based on clear and accessible legal rules, as well as the fact that we have independent and multi-layered oversight and effective remedies when those rules are, in fact, violated. As to my advice for the current administration, I would just urge the interagency team to continue the great work it's been doing And has continued to do under Chris Hoff, moving very, very quickly with our allies to implement an updated privacy shield so that the thousands of small businesses, and and I have a, a special partiality given the fact that I used to be with a small digital company. But making sure that they can rely on the millions of international data transfers that take place every day and have the legal certainty that they need to carry out their business operations. I talked about my experience, but this obviously is not an issue just for the digital sector. Data really boosts the competitiveness of nearly every industry from manufacturing to agriculture. And if you're going to restrict data flows, that's going to have significant global impacts on absolutely everything from COVID treatment to preventing money laundering.
2: Thank you, Jim. That's helpful to to get that background on the important work around the transatlantic transfers. Looking across the Pacific Ocean, you've also been engaged in your office and the work you've done around the cross border data flows with Asia. And I know particularly in the APEC cross-border privacy framework, cross-border privacy rules, your office was actively involved on those discussions, the growth, also looking at possible applicability of the CBPRs, even outside of the 21 economies who are part of APEC. Welcome your thoughts on how you see the APEC CBPRs and the U.S. efforts around the Pacific, aligning with the overall work of your office and how you think about privacy generally?
0: The APEC cross-border privacy rule system was absolutely a priority for our office. And again, because the digital economy is in many respects becoming, or at least in large part becoming, the global economy and affecting nearly every sector of our society. I think expanding adoption of the CBPR system is a very welcome development. Data, it's a big cliche, but data doesn't respect borders. Uh, And a mechanism like the CBPR system ensures that when data does flow across national boundaries, it will do so in a protected and secure manner that is actually enforced by regulators from different countries who are all working from the same baseline of standards and coordinating their efforts. So instead of this balkanized approach, we have a much more coordinated approach to dealing with these these issues. As to, to moving it from APEC, you know, I'll leave the final destination of the current team. I know there's a number of discussions underway as to where it may go. I will say, though, that there was a groundswell of interest in the CBPR system. Again, as we're seeing this digitization of the global economy, more and more governments and policymakers and other stakeholders, frankly, are trying to, to figure out the best way to deal with all of the issues that, that come with that. But we heard from a number of non-APEC economies, including Brazil and India and Turkey, among others. And that's really what prompted us to consider trying to convert this very successful regional framework in APEC into perhaps a more global instrument for for other countries that are not in APEC to take advantage of. So again, I think this is a very positive and constructive development.
1: And as we watch the proliferation of new privacy laws or updates to the laws, what are ways we can develop these common approaches to data governance? Is there a sense of urgency? Are there any potential developments we should be keeping our eye on?
0: It's a great question. I think there are a number of different angles that have to be considered. I think to be blunt, and this is in no way intended to be disrespectful to anyone, but developments in the digital space are accelerating rapidly and government is always inevitably a bit behind in regulating new technologies. And I think that's only become more pronounced in recent years. You know, in many instances, the companies, some companies are, are having trouble keeping up with developments themselves. The problem we face is that there is today no single global standard on data governance. And my view, arriving at such a standard is going to take years, if not decades. And so in the meantime, businesses and other organizations are going to face this increasing regulatory fragmentation that poses some very prohibitive costs if you have to comply with all of these unaligned data privacy laws that different countries are are enacting around the world. You know, the companies are spending millions of dollars trying to comply with these laws, again, are unaligned. And every dollar that you're spending on trying to comply with these different laws is going to be a dollar that you're not spending on innovation or on hiring or moving into new markets. And so I think unless or until there is such a standard, I think there will be, but again, we'll take time. We're going to have to recognize that at least among democracies, we can build bridges, just as we've done in the past with Privacy Shield to bridge our differences with Europe at least in the regulatory sense. And similarly, among certain APEC, I think there are nine APEC economies now. And again, I just noted that there's interest from in non-APEC economies, built some bridges. It says, look, we share a lot of the same baseline standards. We have some differences, but what can we do to bridge those differences? You know, I think in addition to democracies should act to really expedite a common approach to data governance. We undertook an effort back in 2018 with our Japanese and EU partners during my tenure and that effort ultimately led us to go into the OECD, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, so that we could start developing some common principles and best practices around government access to private sector data, which you know I just mentioned in the Privacy Shield context, but it really has become a key point of contention among many nations in recent years. I think if we're able to develop such principles in the OECD, it's gonna really go a long way to achieving our ultimate goal, For those who may not know, almost every privacy law and framework around the world today stemmed in some measure from the OECD privacy guidelines, which were first developed in 1980. And those were, of course, based on some fair information principles that were developed by our own Federal Trade Commission back in the 70s. But I don't think there's any reason that we can't continue this iterative process to address the new challenges we face.
2: Jim, one of the the new challenges... One of the issues that we're all looking at is artificial intelligence. It certainly um, is gaining a lot of public interest. I know the U.S. government and other governments have been looking at what it means for the role of government. So as you think back about your work and looking at what the U.S. government is going to do and helping create the right frameworks to ensure that we have the right ethical innovation around AI, that the U.S. is a leader in artificial intelligence and just sort of how it has an impact on emerging technologies and people. Share some of your thoughts about how you've seen this and what do you think we ought to be taking into account?
0: Yeah, there are obviously a great many efforts and discussions around you know, what the United States needs to be doing when it comes to AI. It's an incredibly broad topic with some incredibly challenging questions. So there are numerous considerations when it comes to AI. But I think what we've got to do to respond directly to your question, how do we ensure that we remain preeminent? And we are right now, but, you know, that may not last forever if we don't take the right steps. I think one of the critical actions we need to take when it comes to protecting you know our position in the world on this issue, is making sure that the US government strategy on AI protects and promotes American values when it comes to things like civil liberty and privacy and fostering public trust. A lot of questions have been raised about AI. There's been a lot of hype around AI. There's been a lot of scare stories around AI. But I do think the values question, making sure that there's transparency, and that we are respecting individual rights uh, and civil liberties is critical. I think that's been our competitive advantage for the U.S. versus many other players in this space, as well as other spaces. And so to that end, I think we need to ensure that all of the relevant stakeholders come to the table as we continue to craft and reiterate and refine our federal policy. And that means not just industry and academia, which that's what we usually hear about when we talk about AI development. But I think it's, it's absolutely essential that we have civil society and ethicists and other groups at the table who are there to help ensure that, that we really fully appreciate and have a, a fulsome view of the various benefits, but also the various threats that come from AI adoption.
1: And Jim, turning to the pandemic, we know the pandemic has caused an acceleration of technology uses and realization of new potential. Given your background, we would love it if you could share your thoughts about the role of blockchain, distributed ledger technology, and as a potential means to secure data flows and protect privacy.
0: Sure. You know, we've obviously talked a lot about the various policy initiatives and solves when it comes to this, this global debate around privacy and, and data protection. But till recently, I think there wasn't as much discussion or debate around blockchain or digital ledger technology to your point as there should have been. You know, these are in many respects, they're technological problems that I think could and will have technological solves. I think, um, you know, conceptually, if we were able to ensure that everyone has, for example, their own digital identity and that only those individuals and only a small number of trusted government entities have access rights to someone's personal data when necessary, that could or at least seems to be a very powerful tool for protecting personal data. Certainly, there seems to be a lot more public debate these days around blockchain and DLT in the context of digital currencies. But I do think the privacy applications could be game-changing. And I'm glad to see that there's increasing discussion among the interagency interaction with, with industry stakeholders and others on this issue. And I know my own office when I was there had a number of dialogues with our friends in Europe and elsewhere. And my understanding is that those dialogues are continuing. So I think that's a very
1: welcome development. Thank you. That makes a lot of sense. Um, well, we're coming to the end, and we usually like to ask our guests one question. What book are you currently reading? <laughs>
0: <laughs> so when I, when I run out of things on Netflix or other, <laughs> other uh, applications, I've been trying to get through a, a great book that a friend recently gave me by Neil Ferguson called Civilization, The West and the Rest. It basically, talks about how roughly 500 years ago, The West surged ahead and many others in the world based on some critical factors. Not to say that the West was perfect, but it really broke down in a very compelling way how things changed in many respects in in Europe and in the West when there was a real embrace of science, when folks recognized the value uh, of competition, just how critical the rule of law is, modern medicine. And the individual work ethic. And I think actually, it's been a pretty potent reminder to me of how our nation could rather fall behind in our current digital economy, or alternatively, how it can maintain its preeminence in in many fields in a way that that does respect individual dignity and rights. And I think that's a a great way to to end on my message today. So thank you again for having me. I, I do appreciate it.
1: Thank you, too. It was a pleasure having you. We really appreciate it.
2: Thank you, Jim. Great to be with you today.
1: Thanks for listening to Global Trade Talks, brought to you by Kroll &
0: Mooring. You can access more information about our guests today in our show notes or at kroll.com slash globaltradetalks. You can find all our episodes and subscribe to our series on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts.